David. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. All right, well, hey, if you don't know who I am, if you haven't seen me before, my name's David, and uh, I'm on staff with uh, Frontline. I'm our teaching pastor, which means I get to bounce back at uh, one of our two campuses right now. So that's a lot of fun for me. I love that, but uh, I love being down here. I get to be down here once a month, and uh, I'm stoked about our topic today and where we're at, what we're doing. But before I jump into that, I just want to start off, um, I want to show you a picture. So if you look at the picture behind me, any kayakers in the room? Anybody here like kayaking, like being outside, like being on the water? So the last trip that Shannon and I took to go kayaking was about two weeks ago. And I just got this new kayak. It's like one of those sit-on-top ones. And I, I had this idea, like, this would be super fun to bring our black lab and just have her sit on the front of my kayak. And for those of you chuckling, you know, this is a horrible idea. It's not going to work out for me at all. So I get on the kayak. We finally coax the dog. She's 70 pounds, okay? Just bring that into, like, perspective for a second. So she sits on the front of the kayak, and there's a reason I chose this picture, because you can see the nose is just buried, right? I spent the entire hour and a half, two hours going down the river doing, like, an ab core workout, trying to keep us above water and not in water. You know, and you would just see her, like, she'd shift her weight, and it would throw everything off. But this reminded me of the last time I went kayaking, um, and I, I went with a buddy of mine, uh, his name's Patrick, and we went with this like entire huge group of people. So about a hundred of us are, we started up in Rockford, and we went down the Rogue River, and we ended up in downtown Rockford. Um, but here's the thing, when you have a group that large all showing up for kayaks and canoes and whatnot, do you want to be first there or do you want to be last? First, right? As close to the front as possible. Why? Because what's left over after everyone else takes the good kayaks, right? The most jippy, awkward, tippy thing that you could ever imagine. So that's what Patrick gets. Pat shows up late. He's one of the last people to, sh to show up. So he gets this teeny tiny little tippy off-brand kayak. And so we start going, and I can tell, like, as soon as he gets in it, it's, it's a core workout, right? Again, and uh, we start going down the river. We get five, ten minutes down, and I'm like, this is going to be a riot because he, his goal is to stay afloat. Our goal is to have fun. So granted, we could change goals a little bit, and our goal would be to have more fun by him losing control of his kayak and rolling. <laughs> right? You follow me? So I start having fun. I start pointing out everything I'm seeing. Pat, look at this tree over there. Isn't that a cool tree? Look, it's really brown and green. So he looks. Pat, you see the, see the geese over here? Look at the geese. Oh, Pat, look at the, the ducks over here. And the third one, I got him. He looked at the ducks, lost his balance, rolled his kayak right in front of us. This was first 10 minutes. I'm like, this is going to be an awesome experience. So he's soaked. He's wet. He gets back in the kayak. And we start going. Here's what we didn't know. Pat would roll that kayak six more times in the next hour and a half. And at a certain point, you start feeling bad for the guy, right? You're like, okay, stay afloat this time. And no matter what he did, kept flipping it, kept rolling it, kept losing control. So we got to the end of the river, right towards the end. And if you, if you kayak down the road, there's this stretch about 100, 150 yards before you're done. And it's the grossest, nastiest part of the entire river, right? This is where all the geese love to, to, to play and then also, you know, relieve themselves. So the water is gross. It's this murky, muddy, brown. And I remember looking at Pat saying, you don't understand right now. You do not want to flip in this part of the river. And he goes, okay, I, I get it. And as I look over, I notice something that I hadn't noticed the entire kayak ride. As I looked at his, I like paddle up next to it. As I look at his kayak, he's a bigger dude. And so the back of the kayak 
was sitting down in the water a little bit, but it was missing one really important piece of hardware that would have transformed everyone's experience. Any guesses? The plug. He had been leaking water in through the back of the kayak for the last two hours, and so the water would just rush in slowly, right? It just keeps leaking in. But sooner than later, all of a sudden, his balance is off. All of a sudden, the weight is off, and he would lose it, and he kept rolling it over and over and over again. Here's why I tell this story. Isn't it true that sometimes in life, small issues like pride, for example, seep into our lives like a kayak without a plug? And that at first, we don't notice anything, but if we don't deal with the problem, eventually we end up underwater in our lives. You following me with that imagery? Isn't it true that sometimes seemingly small, insignificant, little things kind of just get their way into our lives or get their way into our hearts? And at first, we don't notice it. We don't realize it. We don't, we don't feel anything different. We don't see anything different. But over time, it becomes harder and harder to manage and control. And if we don't deal with it, eventually we end up upside down. This is why I tell the story. Um, where we're at right now in this series called Shepherds and Kings is we're looking at the life of David. And in particular, in this part, we're looking at David's relationship to Saul. So Saul, just to catch you up, if, if you've been here, if you haven't been here, to catch you up, Saul is the current king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel, and God identified him and said, you are going to be the leader of Israel. You're the first king. You're in charge. You're it. So Saul is leading, but Saul makes a couple, a, a series of decisions that actually disqualifies him, according to God, to be king of Israel. So God says, that's it. Your end is coming to a, to a close. Um, it's getting near, and I've already selected the next king to take over after you. So, so Saul has this in his mind. He has this in his heart. But Saul is just getting more angry and more angry. Uh, but then David shows up on the scene. And David's right, this little shepherd boy that shows up. And the last week that we just talked about was David and Goliath. So David's like the pizza delivery guy. He shows up with bread and cheese for his brothers. Says, hey, here you go. I brought all this. This is what I was supposed to do. And he hears the cry of Goliath. And Goliath is calling out the Israelites, and he's calling out the Israelite God, and he's cursing all of them. And David says, this is wrong, and this needs to be stopped. And so David comes over and says, I'll, I'll fight him. If there's no one else, I'll fight him. And Saul had been announcing to all his people trying to get anyone to fight him, saying, you can marry my daughter. I'll give you my oldest daughter. I'll make you a rich man. Like, somebody just fight this guy. Defeat him. Nobody would because he was huge. He was nine feet tall. He was just this warrior, but he was the, part of the Philistine army. So David shows up. David says, I'll do it. Just a little shepherd boy, but whatever. He walks out there and he gets five smooth stones and he takes his slingshot and he whips it at the giant. And the one part of his entire body that's left exposed is right between his eyes. And that's right where the stone connects. And it hits him and it kills him. And David is praised. He's the national hero. Right? The whole battle ends with the Israelites conquering the Philistines. Philistines running for their lives. And so David, right, just picture like Rudy, right? Like they're all holding him up like, David, David, right? They just love David. David becomes this national hero. But now, see what happens. This is so funny. First Samuel 18, starting in verse 6, it says this. Uh, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine talking about Goliath, the women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang these words, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Ouch! 
You're King Saul. This is your guy, right? Saul did what was smart and what any smart leader would do. David kills Goliath. He says, guess what? You have a new job. You now work for me. You're on my team. Perfect. It's going to work out. But David takes off. Wildly successful. Everything he does, everything he touches, everywhere he goes, people love him. They follow him. They cheer for him. And so Saul, Saul hears this song that the people made up, that they're singing. This is known all over the country. David has slain his tens of thousands. So look what happens to Saul's heart here. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. You hear the comparison going on? You see the, the plug coming out of the kayak here and just pride starting to leak into his heart, starting to seep in. Look what he says next. What more can he get but the kingdom? What more can he get? Do you, here's what he's doing. He's looking at what he's in charge of, what he's in control of, his kingdom. He says, what more can David have but the kingdom, but my kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Pride is a killer. And we all know this, right? Pride, it kills relationships. It divides marriages. It splits companies. It, it, it just it works like a parasite that attaches to its host and just slowly eats away at the inside. And, and here's the biggest thing about pride is pride doesn't drive you to people or to community, but it drives you away from and in isolation. And so this is just what we see happening with Saul. Saul, just, the more, more he thinks about it, and the more he consumes him, he's just comparing himself to Saul, or Saul to David, Saul to David, Saul to David, this, this horizontal comparison. And so it drives him, you know, just picture like, I wish I had sand up here. Imagine like sand, like he's holding the sand in his hand, and the tighter he squeezes, the more it leaks out. No matter what he does, he's holding on, but he looks at David, and David is the enemy. So what we see is, is Saul just unwinds, right? He just, he loses control. Here's what happens. Remember, he promised to give whoever slays Goliath his oldest daughter. Remember that? So here's what Saul does. Saul says, hey, David, do you want to marry my oldest daughter? And kind of like dangles it in front of him like, you want to? And David goes, no, man, it's a big deal to become the king's son-in-law. And Saul goes, you're right. I'll give her away and gives her to someone else. David responds, okay, that's okay. And then it says just a couple of verses later in this chapter, verse 18, that, that David and Saul are in, in the same room together and that Saul is just angry and he's fuming and all of a sudden he just snaps and he grabs the spear that was right next to him and he sees David and he just chucks the spear at him and the spear sticks into the wall and David dodged it the first time. But then it happened again, and David dodged it the second time. Saul was out to kill David, not because David had wronged him, but because pride had so consumed and twisted and contorted Saul's heart. Saul was so intent on destroying David, and this brings us to our text today. Um, he comes up with this unusual task, this unusual way of getting David destroyed. He tried killing him himself. He tried running him away. No matter what, he, he can't get rid of David in this problem. But here we are, 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 20. It says this, now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. You just see the unwind happening in Saul's heart. 
He's going, you know what? I, whatever it takes to destroy David, that's what I'll do. And if it means giving him my daughter, she's a handful. I'll give him to her, and maybe that will destroy him. Right? You just see the, the wheels turning in his head? So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Right? And if you're a young guy, just think about this for a second. You've already dodged two spears. You know the guy hates you. Do you really want to marry his daughter? No. Wise thing, walk away, turn around. But, like any other young guy, David had a thing for Mikal. She was a pretty girl. They clicked. She liked him. He was well aware of that. And so David goes, huh, there might be an opportunity here. Next slide. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you. To which David would respond, right. And his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. That's weird. Can we just acknowledge it? It's a weird idea. It's in the Bible. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Now, pause, time out, just for one second. If you ever get to something like this in the Bible, where it's just weird, or it doesn't make sense, or you're trying to rack your mind, like, what is going on here? There's probably more to the story. You want to know the rest of the story here, what's going on? Saul knows Philistines. Remember the Philistine army? Philistine army was Goliath's army. And so Saul knows these guys hate us. We took out their number one warrior, and we chased them away. We slaughtered I mean, we're, they hate us right now. But now, if I, if I can send David, the thing about the Philistines is they also hate the Israelite God, and they hate the Israelite religious practices. They, they hate Judaism. They, they hate it. They detest. One of the things they detest most is circumcision. So think about Saul here for a second. He's going, I'm going to talk. I'm going I'm to throw something out there. I'm going to give an opportunity for David to become my son-in-law, to do something to a group of people who hate us already, and to do to them probably the one thing that they hate most. Not only are we going to kill them, but we're going to defile them. And you just think about this from a Philistine perspective. If, that, if David came to you, or if David came to your family, or your village, or your army, and did that to your people, you wouldn't just hunt him down to make it even. You would hunt him down to make him pay. And that was Saul's plan. I will destroy him by the hands of my own enemies. You see how pride just keeps getting in and leeching and squeezing tighter and tighter and tighter. So this is funny. What's David say? When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. All of a sudden, it's enticing. This sounds fun, right? So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed how many? 200 Philistines. And brought back their foreskins. Again, weird. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. And I love the last line. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. No exclamation point. No words from Saul. No more dialogue. It's just, you know, a reluctant taker. You know, I'm 
plan A. I hope she's a snare to you. Just take her. Think about just David's heart here for a second. David loves Mikal, right? Don't forget that. David loves this girl. So why, why do 200? I just have a thought or a guess. I wonder if Saul made this proclamation to the community and said, whoever brings back 100, you're in. And David went, I'm going to make sure I win this deal. I'm going to double it. And he does. But I just, I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss what's happening in Saul's heart here. Is Saul's life is unwinding. It's coming unhinged. He's losing control. He's losing his mind. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's paranoid. It doesn't matter what happens. He is so intent on destroying David. And it goes back to what he said in verse 9, right at the beginning, when he said, what more could he have but the kingdom, but my kingdom? And as he holds it tighter and tighter and tighter, it just continues to leak and disappear, and erode from his grip. And this drives him off the edge. Is there someone like this in your life? Just as we pause and like think about, okay, if I think about work, who, who's the know-it-all at work that their pride just drives me nuts? They just think they got all the answers. They know what to do. They're always the front runner. They're always getting it. Who, who's that person at work? Or maybe, maybe it's your spouse, the one that always thinks they're right or that they never admit they're wrong or they never apologize. Maybe it's the parent that never seeks forgiveness from their kids. You know, maybe, maybe I don't know what it is, filling in. Maybe it's somebody at school. Maybe it's the player on the court, you know, LeBron James, case in point. I don't know what it is in your life. But isn't it easy for us to point out and find the people that are just so full of pride and just consumed with themselves in our lives? This is what stinks, though. Um, I love this quote. Can you put this quote up for me here, Tori? Um, it's that pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Huh. Isn't that interesting? That the one person that's just like, that just drives me up a wall and they drive everybody else up a wall around them and they're, they're just driving everybody crazy. They're the one person that can't see the effect that they're having on everybody else. This is what David says later, Psalm 55, verse 21. He says, uh, he's talking about Saul. He says this, his talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet there are drawn swords. Are there people like that in your life? That they talk a good game or they show a good face and yet there's war going on underneath them inside. But here's the hard question and this is where it's hard to ask right? or, or hard to turn introspective. Are you ever that person? Do you ever come across that way? Is it you that sometimes pride has leaked in for, or for whoever knows how long? That pride leaks in and all of a sudden you're the Saul to someone else. Do you have the ability to see it? Or, or the more you grab and hold on to and squeeze and tighten and grip, the more it seems everything else unravels around you. I think this story's in here for a reason. I think God has a lot to teach us about Saul and about David and about pride and how, they, how these two work together. Um, but I love David's response. 
Because David, if you just think about him, he's the other character here that that he's been the focus of Saul's rage, but we don't often um, dive into David's heart and how he responds to the rage of someone else above him. Because if you think about this, in David's mind, he is also committed to his king. That Saul is above him. Saul's in charge. And not not just that, Saul says... um, Or God says, I picked Saul. Saul is our king. Saul is our leader. Saul is the ruler of Israel. And until God removes Saul, David serves his king, and he also serves his God. And so David's heart, just as we unpack that, how how does David respond? Um, You think about um, what David brings to the table, first of all. Let's just start. David comes from the tribe of Judah, a well-known, powerful tribe. He has prestige in the community just because of his family lineage. David's good-looking. He's good with people. He's a great warrior. He's a national hero. He won this beautiful girl in the hearts of many, and everybody's flocking to David. David has so much going for him. It's not that David lacked, and it's not even that Saul lacked, but it's the approach or the heart or the perspective that they had in their heart about themselves in their relation to God. Here's the key. David never forgets whose kingdom it actually was. Think about this for a second. Saul reveals his cards to us, verse 9. He says, what more could David take but the kingdom? And that kingdom that he's talking about is Saul's kingdom. But David, if you just back it up and you look at David in his time as a shepherd, when David grew up, he was just a boy. He was in the fields. He looked after sheep, and he did what God called him to do. He's just a shepherd. I just take care of these sheep, and when a bear comes or a lion comes or a wolf comes that threatens my sheep, I defend them. This is my job. And then God sends a prophet, and the prophet says, guess what? You're going to be the next king of Israel. How quickly would it happen if it was any of us in the room that that goes to our heads? I'm the next ruler. I'm the next promotion. I'm the next leader. I'm the next boss. I'm the next whatever. And it changes our attitude, and it changes our heart. But for David... David held it like this the entire way. He just held this open hand towards whatever God gave him because it didn't hurt if God took it away. This open heart towards the kingdom. God says, I'm, I'm going to make you my next king. And David just holds it like this. It's wide open. You can take it. I can receive it. It's up to you. And what David maintained throughout the story, and we're going to see this as we keep unpacking it throughout the next couple of weeks, but David always treated the kingdom particularly of Israel, always as God's kingdom. And he always treated his people as if they were God's people. And he always saw himself, not through his own eyes or through his people's eyes, but through God's eyes. If I can, if, for those of you who are spatial or image-driven or whatever, um, Saul compared himself horizontally to everybody else around him, and that allowed pride to seep into his heart. But David always compared himself vertically to his relationship with God. And because of that, David unlocked the key to humility. And a humble heart is one that is able to approach things with an open hand. Saying, I I am where I am right now because of you, God. I am who I am now because of you. And I'm where I'm at, and I have what I have, and everything else, it's because of you. It's not because of me. It's not because I'm better than the people around. It's not because I'm worse. It's because of you, and you've gifted it to me. And here's the crazy thing about being closed-fisted versus open-handed. Saul is closed-fisted, and the more he squeezes, the more it leaks out. But David, as David comes with an open hand, not only can you give, but you can receive. And God continued to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing because it was never David's kingdom. 
It was always God's kingdom. I want to share this quote with you. It says, the strength of pride will eventually submit to the power of humility. Isn't that just true? And you just think about that. The strength of pride, and you look at it in this story too, the strength of Saul's pride and arrogance and the way that he just held tightly to everything that was his would always eventually submit to the humility of David. Uh, as we're going to see just as the weeks go on, David has numerous opportunities that he could kill Saul, that he could end it, that he could take his life and be done. And he's already been anointed the next king. People already know he's going to be the next king. And yet David always approaches with this heart of humility saying, guess what? I don't care what his strength says. I don't care what his pride says. I don't care what his arrogance says. I, I don't care. He's in charge, but I'm submitted, not even just to him, but to God. So everything I have is open-handed and I trust you and I'll follow you and I'll give to you and I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you have for me. Just this open hand is so symbolic of an open heart towards God. So why would that be in the Bible? Why would that be preserved for thousands of years for us to unpack and investigate today what that means for our lives? I love this part. Um, Luke 18, verse 9, it starts this way. David's approach to Saul actually sets the stage for Jesus years later. Jesus is, is teaching the people around him. He says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, so a religious leader, and one a tax collector, a traitor of his own people. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like any other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You hear the horizontal comparison? Thank you that I'm not like any of these guys. And yet, turn the page here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of what I earn, but... Go ahead, Tori. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You, see, you hear the, the vertical comparison? It's not about everybody else. It's about you and me, God. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The question I just want to ask is this. To which kingdom does your heart belong? So we just unpack this story and we continue to unpack the life of David and how he treats his relationship with God. Um, where do you identify? What, what's the posture of your heart? Is it like Saul that just grips and holds onto and controls and manipulates and maintains? Or is it David? who's almost just along for the ride. It says, God, everything's about you. Everything I have is from you. Everything I am is because of you. I am here because of you, and I'm at your service to do whatever it is that you want me to do. I'm so open-handed. Lead me wherever you want to lead me. Give me whatever you want to give me. Take from me whatever you want to take, because I am your servant, and I will not make the mistake 
of thinking that this is about me? Or is it like Saul? We just hold on tighter and tighter and tighter. And the thing is, the tighter you hold, the more it hurts when it gets taken away. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know where you're at in life. And, you know, just even hearing Tanya's story about last night, I just can't help but just think about this open-handedness going, okay, God, I can't control anything anyway. I just trust you. I trust you to take care of my kids. I trust you to take care of my job. I trust you to take care of my reputation. I trust you to take care of me financially. I, I just trust you with everything I am and all that I have because I, I see myself in the right light. I'm not comparing myself horizontally. I'm comparing myself to you. And you love me and you died for me. And he, he, even what Jesus just taught, this is considered righteous before me. You just keep an eye on me and you and where you stand. But I elevate the humble. I bring them up. So to which kingdom does your heart belong? I just want to close with one psalm. So David is the author, and he writes this years later, and he says this. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Here's the big line. Your kingdom, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Would you pray with me? God, we just come before you now and we just submit ourselves to you. You are God and we are not. We just humbly come to you and surrender all that we have. And we, we come, even some of us who have that closed fist on whatever it is we think we, we have or whatever it is we think we want or what we can control. God, we just come with these closed fists. And, and even if it's hard, we just slowly release them to you and say, God, you are God and I am not. And if pride has snuck its way in, Father, we just pray that you would move into our hearts and work inside of us, that you would release us, that you would show us where it's at work in our hearts, where it's eroding relationships or where it's preventing us from doing what you've called us to do. Father, just move into our hearts and take over. Give us a right perspective of our relationship with you and the effect that you have on people who are yours. Father, we thank you for the honor and for the privilege to be a part of your kingdom, to be called children of yours. Father, let us not forget who we are in relation to you. And let us not forget how much you love us.